0: Well, let's get into Joshua today. Uh, Joshua has just been a profound book. I just have enjoyed studying this book. We're going to be in chapter 9 today. We're going to see a beautiful, weird deception that just uh, gets all sorts of crazy. Uh, when I was working at Youth for Christ, uh, one of my, employ- my friends, it wasn't my employee, it was, he was my peer, he came up to me and he was talking about how he needed a vehicle, that his vehicle had just gone kaput, and he had been looking for one. And so he showed me on his browser a vehicle that he had found on eBay. And it was a good-looking truck. Like It was a good-looking truck, inside and out, just beautiful. And it was a newer truck with low mileage on it. And they were only asking $7,000 for this truck. And Now, now that's a crazy number, $7,000, a lot of money. But in the realm of full-size truck, not a lot of money. And so my friend's just ecstatic about this. Oh, that sounds like a good deal. And, and he says, listen, this guy, he is a soldier that needs to sell this. He, he has a week to sell it because he's going to be deployed over, overseas for years. And he just want to get his affairs in order. He doesn't have time to deal with this truck when he's gone. And so that's why he's giving me this good price. I thought, well, that's weird. But it wasn't my money, nor was I in uh, the mood to buy a vehicle to get on that dra- gravy train. And so I didn't think much about it. But I do remember thinking, that kind of sounds good. That sounds too good to be true. And well, you may have already come to this conclusion, but uh, it was too good to be true. Uh, my friend was uh, just expedient in his decision making process. Not to say that he doesn't have common sense, he was just blinded by a really good story and a really good deal at a moment that he really wanted something. And so he sent this guy a cashier's check for $7,000 in South Carolina. And my friend quickly learned that that was the only part of that transaction that would be filled. Because there was no truck, and there was no soldier, just a conman on the other end, preying on people who are blinded by a really good deal, and an honorable story. And to this day, I don't, I don't believe my friend has got his $7,000 back. It was a lie, a deception. And so here's, here's the question today. What do you do as a believer... When a situation arises that makes a lot of sense, that seems really good, and you're pressured to make a decision either by somebody else or by your gut or by the story being believable, what, what do you do and what do you do if it turns out to be a deception. That is what we're going to be walking into in Joshua 9 today. That's the situation that's happening in the book of Joshua in chapter 9. This is straight from a movie scene. If anybody ever wants to tell you that the Word of God is boring, uh, take them to Joshua 9, because there is an unbelievable story to be found here. And so we're going to look into it together, and so we'll start here in Joshua 9, verse 1. As soon as the king's who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who's throwing some Ossianites and Panites there. Uh, They heard this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibbon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him, and said to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. And so... Two massive victories in the land of Canaan have really kind of riled out the inhabitants in the area of Canaan after God's people annihilate Jericho, an impenetrable fortress, devoured and destroyed totally, and then they just rout Ai and Bethel, totally destroyed. There is some fear to be found in the residents in Canaan. And so they're so fearful that they're willing to join together with people they don't necessarily like to make a bigger army to go against a common opponent. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the the Jebusites, they don't have a lot of love for each other. But they do have one thing in common, and that is the fact is that Israel and God are getting ready to take over the land. And so they hope by combining that they're going to be able to withstand uh, the power of God. And we know as the readers, we know today that that's just absolutely foolish. Absolutely foolish to think that. And then we have this different group of people called the Gibeonites. And they just do a complete different tactic. They have a different route here in mind. In in something straight out of Hollywood, they devise a scheme to fool the nation of Israel to make a pact of peace with them. They build this crafty story, and they support it by the use of props that they're going to leverage to say, Hey, we're from a, a very lo- long-away country. You, you need to make peace with us. We want a covenant. Even though the Gibeonites live just mere, uh, mere 10 miles away from where the, the Israelites are camped at this moment, They build this story by using old, crusty bread and provisions, worn-out sandals and wine sacks. It's just a, a crazy story. This is a performance deserving of an Academy Award. And so, why would they take such care to devise a story like this? Well, we don't know how the Gibeonites knew this, but they Know that the nation of Israel is forbade to make covenants and pacts and oaths with anybody in the land of Canaan, and we know this because Moses says it blatantly or blatantly in Exodus three. This is the only place that he says it. But he says this: You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare. To you, So how they learned that the Israelites weren't going to make any covenants with people in the land of Canaan, but they were allowed to from people from distant land that we don't know that. I don't know if they had a spy in the camp. Uh, Hopefully, if you were a spy in the camp, you weren't there for circumcision day. That would be a story you tell for a while, right? So we don't know how that they knew this, but we knew that they leverage it for their benefits somewhere down the line. And so they prepare to deceive the Israelites and they leave. It's a crafty story. And then it just, it really just becomes an infomercial at this point. It just becomes them trying to sell themselves. Have you ever watched an infomercial about knives? It's crazy. They try to convince you you need a product because of how hard the the other product is. Like a knife is hard. You got people, they show images of people chopping carrots like it's the, oh, I can't do this. Oh, cut my finger. What's wrong? Who are these people? Like, what's wrong with them? It's just a knife. It's a carrot. Just cut it. This is what the Gibeonites go and do. They're trying to sell themselves here to the Israelites. And so they come up to the Israelites, and they say, look, we've, we've come from a distant land. We've come from far away. Make peace with us. We want a covenant with you. And, and the men of Israel are really, they're unsure what to believe. They're, I don't know what to believe here. And so they question them. And then the Gibeonites say, hey, look, we're from a distant country. Listen, we have heard how great and honorable and powerful your God and your people are. Our elders got together and they said, hey, we got to be a part of this. They're awesome. And so we set out to be your servants. We just want to be servants. And that's all they're doing. They're flattering them. They're just, that's what people do when they want something from you. They come up to you and say, hey, man, you look good today, Right? I've been here uh, for four years, and I, I, I can still remember conversations I've had with people who've come in who want some humanitarian aid, and we try to, to do that as best as we can, as often as we can, but, but we have people that come in and say, hey, I go to your church. Sometimes it's hard to know everybody that's here, and they say, ah, I go to a church. I love your service. I love what it's all about, and then they say, is Rick still here? Like, Rick Fichter, he hasn't been here for over a decade. Like, what are, you, what are you trying to do? And so I just, okay. This is flattery. You're trying to flatter the situation here. And so this is exactly what's happening. Look at my shoes here. That's what they're saying. Look at my shoes. Look at these old worn-out clothes, my sandals. These wineskins are falling apart. We've come from a long way. Make peace with us. But what we know about the Gibeonites is they're not just servants. Like the Gibeonites are soldiers. They're renowned soldiers. But somewhere along the way, they've figured out that it wasn't going to go well for them in that realm, and so they try to create a ruse here to fool God's people. And upon hearing this story, this infomercial, it's left to the leaders of Israel to make a decision. And this is what the Word says about their decision-making. It says this in verse 14, And so the men took some of their provisions, great, crusty bread. They took crusty bread, and then it said, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Give me some of that crusty bread, but I'm not going to seek the Lord in any of this. And if you're writing notes, you can just write the word again. Exclamation point over the top of that phrase, because this happens over and over. God's people in their hurry lean into their own wisdom. They do not seek the Lord. And after this, in 15, it records that Joshua makes a covenant in front of God with the people of Gibbon. He allows them to remain and be a part of their people. But in the words of a great infomercial, but wait, there's more. Because three days later, they figure out that they're not who they said they were. Three days later, they figure out that these aren't foreigners, but these are neighbors. They come up to the city of the Gibeonites, and they can't do battle because Joshua has sworn an oath to their people. And the people grumble against the leadership. They are not happy about this. They are embarrassed that they were fooled in such a manner. And now they can't do anything. And so now the nation and the leaders realize what has happened. And so what do they do? They know they've been fooled. What would they do? What would you do? What would you do if they came up to them? Well, this is what happens. It says this, But all the leaders said to all the congregation... We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, least wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we have sworn to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood, and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua is unwilling, note this, he's unwilling to go against his word. He's unwilling to undo the covenant that he made in front of God and these people, and he makes them in that water fetchers and woodcutters. But hey, they get to remain a part of God's people. They get to live. So good game, like deception done, like we got what we wanted. How crazy is this? So what do we do with the story? What do we learn from it? How do we flesh this out? I I think that there are lessons to learn on either side of the coin here. I think there are lessons to learn from the Israelites, and there certainly are some profound lessons that we can learn from the Gibeonites. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of flushing out those lessons. And so if we just look at the Israelites, what is the major mistake here? What is the biggest mistake? It's obvious. They didn't discuss any of this with the Lord. If we remember what it said in Verse 14, it said that they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. Why is it, this is so obnoxious, that our people cannot learn this lesson? Every issue that we've discussed in this story of Joshua has been started by the Israelites leaning into their own selves, leaning into their own voice, listening to their hearts, and believing their minds. And how many times do we see the Lord come before them and humble them and say, stop it. Start with me, seek me, slow down. Look to me in these things over and over and over again. God reminding his people to seek him. And so look, this just shows us this, that God's desire is for robust relationships and it is not for casual correspondence. The same core issue that we see plaguing the nation of Israel, make no mistake, it is the same core issue that you and I today as the people of God have. We don't slow down enough to consider the Word of God, to listen to His voice. Instead, we far too often lean into our own selves lean into our own strength, and much like it does here in the Israelites, it creates havoc and difficulties in our life that really don't need to be there. And so, listen, God's desire is that you would not just seek Him in the grand events in life, events in your life that seem well above your ability, well above your understanding to be able to to get through those events. God would want you to seek Him in every situation. We don't have casual correspondence with the Lord. God wants it all. The reality is, is there's not a situation or reality in your life that isn't beyond your own understanding and ability. And we are to seek the Lord in all that we do. And if that means that we slow down to make a decision, then we do that. We slow down. Just because somebody else has an emergency in their life that they need you to make a decision doesn't mean that's your emergency. If we haven't slowed down to take that decision and that issue to the Lord in His Word and listen to His voice, then we don't need to make that decision. How many days did the Israelites just need to wait and they would have been formed differently? Three. Three days and they would have known differently, but they didn't. Things would have been different. Think of this. Just consider this. I'm talking. If Eve was swayed by a deceptive voice in the garden, imperfection, no sin, no death, if Joshua was fooled by the Gibeonites in a reality where God seemed no, so near and available, what makes you confident in your wisdom, in your broken flesh, in this fallen world? That's a deception. You're deceived in that that's where casual correspondence begins god i need you when i need you and i got the rest that's a relationship that's focused on the easy ask and not the better ask that's a relationship that asks the easy stuff the easy ask is for things that we want it's for the things that we want how often in joshua do the israelites seek the lord only when things go wrong Achan and Ai, the whole reason that they wandered in the desert for 40 years prior to this, because they didn't discern the voice of God. The only ask things when they're in personal despair or facing tragedy, and it's self-centered. It's self-centered. And to not believe that we don't share this same pattern would be unwise. Most of our seeking after the Lord is over the things that we want. God, bail me out. God, rescue me here. Lord, I need you now. I need this now. Joshua helps us understand the better ask, the the ask that the Lord desires. The better ask is for the things that he wants. We talked about this a little bit in Joshua too. when when Joshua is leaning into his own strength, looking over the city of Jericho, and, and the commander of the Lord's army comes, and he says this phrase, are you for us or are you against us? And what does God say? Neither. The better question is, are you for me? Like this, are you for me or is this against you, Lord? God, are, am I for you? And so the Israelites, I got people from a distant land. Lord, they're saying they want to make peace. Is this for you? Is this what you desire? God, I got this great job opportunity. Is this for you? Is this what you desire? Lord, there's a, a relationship that I'm in. It's, it's happening fast is it for you? God, do you desire this? We are to seek his desires here. This is what Jesus teaches us when he teaches us to pray. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, your desire is here. The better ask is, Lord, what do you want here? What do you want here? And listen, This isn't about searching for this ethereal thought of peace. Like I'm just looking for peace in my decision making. Well, you can have peace on earth, but it could be completely against God's truth. And so in your decisions, in your issues, are you seeking the truth in God's word? Are you exploring it? Because God's word is there to protect us from a deception of the world and, listen, ourselves. It protects us. Seek not just peace, but seek his truth. Is this for you, God? God only wants one position in our lives. And we've said this before, it's the sinner. Carry Underwood got it right. Jesus, take the wheel, right? He doesn't want the sinner to control you. He wants the sinner to rescue you, to redeem you, and most assuredly, not necessarily from the world, but from yourselves. The better ask is for things that he wants. And so that's what we learn from the Israelites, that God wants a robust relationship, not casual correspondence, one that doesn't ask for the easy things, but one that asks for the better things, what God desires. And the last lesson that we see in the Israelites is really profound. Joshua's example teaches us something here. It says that repaying sinfulness by becoming sinful is not permissible for God's people. What would you have done if this happened to you? What would you have done if you were Joshua and somebody deceived you and you, listen, you made a lifelong pact with this person? We're going to hear about the Gibeonites when we talk about King David and Saul. This is a lifelong commitment that they've just made. How would you handle that knowing that you were lied to? Kill him? I'm sure somebody's thinking that. Put him in the naughty spot? What do you do? Take it back? joshua's response here is noteworthy it's noteworthy because it informs us that whatever realities that we are in whatever happens to us in our lives that ultimately our responses don't hinge on the action or the words of anybody but rather they hinge on our accountability to a holy god we can't be led by what's just and right by the people in in our situations and our reality we can only be led by what's just and right in front of a holy god That's the only justification. Joshua knew it was sinful to break an oath that he had made in front of his people. And he cannot justify sin to repay sin. He can't do it. It wasn't popular, but it was right. But not every decision that we make that is right is going to be popular. Now, it doesn't mean that the Gibeonites got away scotch-free. They were essentially made slaves here in Joshua 9 but they're alive and they're protected they weren't killed and so please understand this to god your life will and does read much like a script from a movie in which every other actor's lines are taken out and every other event and narrative is taken out and the only thing that god sees is your words and your response He will judge those words and those responses on their own merit in front of him. They are not justified by anybody else or anything else. They are accountable to him and him alone. And so we act in a way that honors God the most despite the actions of others. That's exactly what Joshua does here. So now let's turn our attention towards the Gibeonites. Gibeonites, man, they are a strange group. But there are things for us to glean from them. Think about this. The the Gibeonites, they have one reality. They have one reality. God made a promise to the nation of Israel that he was going to give them the land in Canaan and no inhabitant was going to stand in the way. He was going to destroy it all and give it to them. Destroy it all. And so that's the reality. They, much like Jericho and its walls and everything in it, all the people of Ai and Bethel, they are devoted to destruction. Devoted. And so in that reality, they've got two choices. They can either unite with the kings of the world and die, because they're going to die, or they can join them. That's their two choices. They can either make an alliance with the kings here and be destroyed. Jericho and Ai have made it very clear that you are not going to get interference, you're not going to get in the way of a holy God and his people, or they can join them. And so, in their shrewdness, in their cunningness, they figure out that the nation of Israel would make pacts with people from distant countries, and that once they're sworn to those oaths, that they have to uphold them. And so, they leverage all of this for their own benefit. They fooled God's people. They never fooled God, but they fooled God's people. Mission accomplished. Yes. And we know that the Gibeonites were not just included, but they were protected. They were made equals because we read in the next chapter in Joshua 10 that all of these kings come up against the Gibeonites. They're mad that they were granted access into God's kingdom. And all these kings that gathered in the beginning make war on the Gibeonites. And this is what it says. And the men of Gibeon said to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. God brings his people to protect them, fight for them. God himself fights. He throws hailstorms from heaven to defeat these kings. What do we do with this? (laughs) Is this God condoning deception? Maybe you think about this, what do I do with this? They lied and they were blessed. What I want you to do is is to focus on God here rather than focus on the Gibeonites. Because in this story we see uh, just a divine nature and character of God. His character shines in this. And I want you to, to understand this. What reality do we have outside of Christ? What is your future without Christ dying for you? Destruction. You will be judged without Christ. You have one reality. Hmm. Same with the Gibeonites. We are devoted to destruction. Paul writes this in Ephesians to remind us. like, And you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carry out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's not a choice here, but by nature we are children of wrath, that without Christ... We have no hope. There is no justification. We are dead in our transgressions. And we have two choices. We either will unite with the world and perish, or we will join Christ and live. Isn't that the same reality, same choices that the Gibeonites had? Join or die. And in leveraging all that they had, in their shrewdness, in their cunningness. And now, what's interesting at the word of cunning is that this word cunning in Hebrew is the same word that Solomon uses in Proverbs 1 to lay out what the meaning of Proverbs is. He says it is to give prudence and wisdom to the naive. The same Hebrew word that translates into prudence and wisdom is the word that we find in Joshua 9, 4 for cunning. They, in their great wisdom leveraged everything that they had to be a part of God's people. And notice the response that they're met with by God. Grace. Grace. The Gibeonites exemplify the means that God gives in grace to his creation. Although they were condemned to be judged and destroyed in leveraging all that they had, To be a part of God's people, God gave them grace. He included them. And so the Gibeonites, they really beg us to ask this question of ourselves. Am I willing to leverage everything that I have to be one of God's people? Am I willing to sell all that I have to be a part of God's kingdom? Jesus echoes this very thought in Matthew 13 when he talks about the treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Why did the man buy the field? He bought the field because he knew the treasure was better than anything that he could ever have in his life. Why did the Gibeonites try to deceive the Israelites? Because they knew the kingdom of God was better than anything that they could ever have. What do you believe? Do you believe the kingdom of God is better than anything that you could ever have? Are you willing to sell it all or not? Are you willing to sell everything or not? Because notice that the Gibeonites, they didn't go halfway here. They didn't sort of try to fool the Israelites. They were all in, crusty bread and all. They weren't half-hearted at all because they knew that half-heartedness would cause them to be crushed. And the same is true for you and I. Look, God's grace is beautiful, but it's not a gift to lazy people to have everything they want in this world and then to get this security blanket that they get God at the end of this day. That's not what grace was merited to us for. It's not what it was given to us for. Grace is there to empower God's people, to pursue Him, to become like Him. And when they fail, because they will fail, grace is the means that we get to pick ourselves back out up without condemnation in our sin, in our falling, and pursue after Him again. It's how we keep moving. Because to be lukewarm in Christ is to be nothing at all to be lukewarm in Christ is to be nothing at all. He wants it all. Listen, the only reason you get God in eternity is because Jesus gave you his righteousness. Righteousness that wasn't based upon your goodness or your efforts. The word says that you are hidden in Christ. Who does God see when he sees you? It's not you. It's Christ. You want to talk about deception God sees his son in you. There is more to meet the eye than what meets the eye here in the Gibeonites. It displays the power of a loving God to impart grace on his creation. We are the Gibeonites. God's word always comes back to his gospel. It always comes and points forward to Jesus. We get to be a part of his kingdom. He allows us to be a part of his kingdom. We don't deserve to be a part of his kingdom. But in Christ, we are made equal. And we are blessed and protected. Nonetheless. All because of the beauty of Christ. And so we leverage everything that we have out of the gratitudes in our lives for what he's done. And so Joshua 9 says, teaches us some profound lessons from the Israelites. God wants a robust relationship, not casual correspondence, a relationship that doesn't ask for just the easy things that we want, but the better ask is for the things that he wants, that we cannot repay sinfulness by becoming sinful, that's not permissible for God's people. And the Gibeonites remind us that we too, just like them, have one reality, and we have two choices. Will we choose to leverage everything that we have in grace by Christ to be a part of his people. It's a beautiful story. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today and we just give you praise for your word. It pushes on our hearts in ways that we're uncomfortable. Thank you for the truth and the example of the givingites here. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give to us even though we don't deserve it. Lord, will you just push on our hearts a new desire to leverage all that we have because of your son to be more like you? that we would, in grace, feel empowered to walk closer to you, that we would, we would admit our wrongdoings, our failings, our, and, and, Lord, that we would be convicted of those things, that we rebuke them and walk away with, from them, Lord, and we would walk towards you. And so, God, help us to live a higher calling, to not get muddied by the world, but to understand that we are accountable to you and you alone in all that we do. Jesus, we love you. And we pray this in your awesome name. Amen.